tonight I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5, where Jesus encounters a crazy man in a cemetery. Mark chapter 5. We're going to read the first 20 verses. This is God's word. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. That's kind of in the northern part toward around near the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus got out of the boat, well, of course, it was the Sea of Galilee, wasn't it? It's in a boat. A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he broke the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. That crying out means shouting. doesn't mean he was sobbing. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission to go into them. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord had done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends in Christ, uh, there are two things that the Bible takes with great seriousness. And one of them is evil. There are various terms in the Bible for evil, sin, whatever you want to call it, powers of darkness, uh, spiritual wickedness in high places, 
or in the case of the scripture, evil spirits. And sometimes the Bible even speaks of the devil and his angels. We're accustomed to using the word angel to be for someone who's especially uh, polite and decent and sweet. The word angel in the Bible simply means messenger, and the devil has messenger. And they trouble us. And it's all part of that, that surrounding reality called evil. Uh, someone has said that uh, the doctrine of evil in the Bible is the one doctrine that we have daily proof of its truth. If you watch the 5 o'clock news, or you go home and watch the 10 o'clock news, you'll see plenty of evil demonstrated. The Bible takes evil seriously. <clears throat> Fortunately, the Bible takes with even greater seriousness the reality of divine power. And that's what we have in this text. A confrontation of someone possessed with evil, evil is controlling his life, confronting Jesus, who represents the divine power of God. And so the Bible has terms for, the, for that dimension of reality, too. It speaks of the kingdom of God. It speaks of the triumph of light over darkness. It speaks of righteousness, finally victorious over unrighteousness. And it even speaks of angels of God, of mercy, messengers of God's truth and righteousness. <laughs> In this passage, we have a confrontation of these two forces. One in the person of Jesus, the divine power, overpowering, conquering the evidence of evil in the life of another person. And so my topic tonight is, Jesus sets people free. And he sets, Jesus sets people free from demonic power. Can we have these on? Good. And for joyful service. Just two points tonight. Um, a little later in the passage, when, when the demon-possessed man wants to follow Jesus, Jesus says, hey, you go home and tell the people what great things God has done for you. So I have freed you from the domination of evil. Now you can live a life of faithful service. So those are our two main points. First of all, Jesus sets us free from demonic power. Uh, what is freedom? What is freedom? Um, what kind of a definition would you give for freedom? Uh, what do you suppose most people would, would respond, how they would respond if you asked them, if you had a clipboard in a mall, and as people came by, you say, what do you think freedom is? I suspect that most of people would say, freedom is opportunity to do anything I please. <laughs> that is, free from all rules and regulations. If it's students, free from teacher's authority. If it's children, free from parental authority. Um, if it's in business, free from requirements that the government poses upon me. Um, if it's uh, someone uh, among those who are making some demonstrations recently, it's freedom from police authority. And even some police, of course, want to be free from accountability to what their uh, calling requires. Do anything I please. Drugs, sure. 
alcohol, fine. Uh, beat the speed limits whenever I want to. Freedom to do as we please. Now, if that's what freedom is, freedom from all accountability, then I suggest that this man that Jesus confronted was free before he met Jesus. Let's look at this passage a little bit. For instance, he was free to live where he pleased, so he lived in a cemetery. That may sound very strange to us, because, but in the East, if you travel as we have in the East, uh, I noticed in Cairo especially, there were a lot of squatters, what they called squatters, people who didn't belong there, but lived there, in the cemeteries. Now, in Cairo, many of the cemeteries, if people could afford it, had concrete kind of bridges over the cemetery, and people were living in there. So it wouldn't be so unusual for a person from the East to uh, envision that. This man was free to live where he pleased, lived in a cemetery. He was free to wear what he pleased, so he didn't wear anything at all. Uh, verse 15 says that after Jesus changed him, he put clothes on. Well, the implication is he didn't have any on before that. And if you read the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, remember, was a physician and was more descriptive, he comes right out and says a man ran around naked, free to do what he pleased. If he felt like mugging someone walking past the seminary, cemetery, excuse me, that's quite a slip, isn't it? <laughs> After teaching in Westminster Seminary for 34 years, uh, well, that's why it came. I'm apologizing, you see, I hope you see. Um, this man, uh, if he felt like mugging someone going past the cemetery, he beat him up. And if there was no one there to beat up, he beat up on himself. The Bible says, the scripture says in verse 5, that he cut himself with stones. He did, it was his own body. He could do it. He's free to do what he wants with it. You, you understand? If he felt like shouting, verse 5 says, he shouted night and day among the tombs and in the hills. Two o'clock in the morning, wake up the neighborhood. He did free. Do what he pleased. People tried to restrict him with chains. That's verses 3 and 4. Irons on his feet and chains on his hands and feet. And, and uh, yes, <clears throat> he must have beaten those chains on a nearest rock until he broke. He wanted to be a free man. Well, when Jesus came along, he recognized that kind of freedom for what it really was. Bondage. This man was enslaved to evil spirits. He was in a slave to the powers of darkness. So enslaved was he, so unfree, that he didn't even know who he was. He didn't even have a name. Did you get that? Uh, in verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? A name, you see, is your identity, isn't it? My name is Dirk. My wife wants me. She says, Dirk, 
And if I've done something she doesn't appreciate, she says, dark. But I know who she means. This man didn't know who he was. Because when he responds to Jesus, he says, my name is Legion. Now, the word Legion is not a name. It's a quantity. It's like a number. It would be like if you were asked when you came, what's your name? And you say, well, my name is 2,400. Uh, It's not a name. The Romans used the word legion to describe a whole division of troops. Many, it means very many. You see what was happening? The evil spirits were responding with this man's voice. They were many. They were legion. And this poor man didn't know who he was. He didn't even have a name. Well, Jesus responds because, of course, he's confronted with the power of evil in this man's life. Um, you know, it's, it speaks of evil spirits here. The old translation says evil ghosts. Uh, we used to use the term ghosts. You know, even in the Apostles' Creed, we would say uh, the Holy Ghost. And now we say Holy Spirit. Well, there were evil ghosts. There are, there are evil powers and ghosts out there. And um, we're supposed to be afraid of ghosts, aren't we? <laughs> I remember when our children were small, there was a TV program called uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. It was uh, the exception to the rule, and even he had trouble making friends because he was a ghost. Now, people are supposed to be afraid of ghosts. In this scripture, the ghost are afraid of Jesus. So you see where the power center is, who is the most supreme. Verse 10, my name is Legion, he replied, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them, the plural, many ghosts, out of the area. You see, they begged Jesus. Well, when you beg, you recognize, well... There's a greater power and authority to which you're, you're appealing. So they beg Jesus not to send them out of that territory yet. You read the book of Revelation, you know that even the evil spirits know that their time is short, and they will arrive at their end point. But these, these evil spirits say, listen, we like it in this area. How about if we possess these pigs? Well, I don't know how to figure that out. Neither do many of the commentaries. Um, Whether evil forces uh, possess even the animal kingdom. Well, however we understand it, Jesus says, go ahead. He gives them permission, and you know what happened. They ran down a steep hill. If you've ever been on the north part of Galilee, you can just see it because it goes steeply right into the water. It's not, not a nice beach like, you know, like Michigan. First, before you get to the water, go right down the water. You can almost, almost imagine them going into the water and drown. Well, that caused quite a stir because there are 2,000 hogs. Now, these towns, little eater, it says decapolis. That simply means 10, ten towns. There were 10 little towns in that area. And you can imagine 
if you had a farm or farms big enough for 2,000 head of hogs, well, that must have been the primary employer of the city. So you see what has happened is the townspeople, who simply ignored that poor guy running around crazy in the cemetery, when they lost their source of income, they were stirred up. And they come to see what's happened. And they find Jesus there. And they discover this man who has been freed from evil bondage. And they rejoice in God's power and greatness. No. They're perturbed because they just lost a big investment. And they beg Jesus to leave town. Did you get that? These people came to Jesus. And when they found that he was the cause of all of this, they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. We liked it the way it was. We had a good source of income. And you have turned everything upside down, Jesus. Please, Jesus, get out of town. Well, that's the way the evil in the world responds, doesn't it? It doesn't want Jesus around. Have you noticed that there's less and less reference to a divine being in governmental pronouncements? Um, have you, the, I, I served briefly as a Navy chaplain. I was an enlisted sailor in World War II, and after seminary, I served as a chaplain for some, a few years. My brother was a career Navy chaplain for 24 years. He's retired and living in Marion, Indiana now. The chief of chaplains of the Navy, about a year ago, issued a report for all Navy chaplains, and Navy chaplains serve the Coast Guard and the Marines and the Seabees and the Naval Forces, all of them. And the chief of naval chaplains from Washington, D.C., a rear admiral, has now forbidden chaplains to use the name Jesus in a public setting. They may use it in the chapel, in a Bible study, in personal uh, council sessions. But if it's a mixed group, and in the service, you know, they almost have an in, always have an invocation before any great event and a benediction at the end. But he said, don't use the name Jesus. Jesus, get out of the public sphere. We've got it today. Which brings us finally to the joyful service for which this man has been freed. And what's true of him, of course, is true of us to the extent that God has given the grace to overcome the evidences of temptations of evil in our lives, to that extent we are freed up for service. This man wanted to serve the Lord, and so he wanted to stay with Jesus, follow him wherever he went. And Jesus says, no, you go home and tell everybody what Jesus has done for you. You know, that's the essence of Christian witness, you know. Christian witness is not grabbing someone and say, are you saved? Or you're going the wrong way. Christian witness is simply tell somebody what Jesus means to, 
You. And let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Jesus says, tell your family, start there, and tell them what Jesus has done for you. So he went to 10 towns. These are small cities. Capernaum was only about 250, the nearby town was only about 250 population. But nonetheless, he went to 10 of these cities and told them what Jesus had done for him because he was now free. So what is freedom? Well, in order to be free, we have to have our fullest needs met, don't we? And each of us has physical needs, food and drink, and you're not free if you quit eating and drinking. <laughs> you're just going to be, you're just going to die. So, and none of us say, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sick of this dependence on food and drink. I'm going to quit eating and drink. That's no freedom. That's a, a, a recipe for disaster, isn't it? We are all physically dependent on the food we eat, the air we breathe. Stop breathing for five minutes to see what happens. So we're not free if we say, oh, I'm, I'm sick of this breathing. I've been breathing for well, almost told you how many years. <laughs> but uh, I've been breathing all this time. I want to quit this dependence on air. No. Dependence on air keeps us alive. We're physically dependent. We are also socially dependent. We need each other. I'm told that a person in absolute solitary confinement for six months goes crazy. We need each other. We think we're independent. We have social needs. We need each other. Thirdly, we have spiritual needs. And that's where most folks fall down. We need the Lord. We need him to revive us and to redeem us and to refuse to recognize our spiritual needs is, of course, another recipe for disaster. We need God. One of my colleagues at Westminster liked to tell a story, and he told it so often that students started making, making fun a bit of him. Students do that, you know. And he, he talked about a, a fish in the Pacific Ocean. Well, I'm going to revise it for local reasons. But I want you to imagine a fish. Let's make it a coho salmon in Lake Michigan, OK? And that fish is free so long as it recognizes its proper place. As long as it stays in the water, it can live and move and have its being. Yeah, I got that out of the Bible. Have its being means continue existence, all right? As long as it stays in, in Lake Michigan, it has oxygen out of the water to keep it alive and food substances uh, to slake its hunger. And if it wants to, it can swim all the way to Muskegon, okay? It can live and move and keep its existence. But now imagine that a coho salmon, I know they don't do this, but a coho salmon comes near the surface and sees a bird sailing through the air and says, I wish I were as free as a bird. I'm jealous of this freedom that the bird possesses. And it wants to be free so badly, it takes a swim toward the coast and a mighty leap 
onto the sandy beach, free to die. Because it's left an environment of life and traded it for an environment of death. Well, fish don't do that. Well, once in a while, I guess they, they do, but usually they don't. People do. They trade an environment of life that God has given them physically, socially, spiritually, and they want to be free because they see others flying around in the ways of evil and wickedness, and it looks so attractive. And all of us know and have extended family where individuals have tried that route and they find that their crave, craving for freedom really ends in death. You see, the Bible says you cannot serve God and make things your God. <laughs> but we keep doing it anyway, don't we? And the Bible doesn't say you must serve God or that which is opposed to God and then suggest a third alternative, <laughs> playing sort of in the middle. <laughs> but the Bible says, pick your master. You have to be dependent on something. Make sure you're dependent on something that's wholesome and vital and spiritual alive in your life. Paul put it this way, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul called himself a, a slave, literally. He signed some of his letters, doulos, in Greek, which means slave of Jesus. Because Paul knew that submission to the authority of Jesus is the highest form of human freedom. And one closing story. Back, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, when you get old, you keep reminiscing. There was a movement, WWJD. <laughs> I got to make sure the last letter is right. Some of you may remember, you know, people called war pins, WWJD. And they had bumper stickers, serious minded, good Christians, WWJD, which meant. What would Jesus do? Okay? So, they, so it was suggested that this be your model for life. You want to know what's, what, what's wholesome and right and good and proper in your life? Just ask your question, what would Jesus do in this situation? I never liked that. I'll tell you why. I can't do what Jesus does. Because if Jesus met someone addicted to drugs, he would cure him. I can't. You see? If Jesus saw someone oppressed, um, homeless, um, subject to um, the power of someone else in his life, uh, I couldn't free him. Jesus would. So I always suggested to the young people, and I don't know if that's, any of you remember this, that we should change it to WWJA. What would Jesus approve? Let that be your, your counsel. 
He be your master of your life. And in whatever situation you find yourself, every temptation to be selfish or unkind or angry or maybe pilfer something, ask yourself, what would Jesus approve? And you will be, have a freedom that only the Lord can give.